Chapter 24 of For God and Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. For God and Gold by Julian Stafford Corbett. Chapter 24 Of the terrible march we had here, we regained our ships. I will not speak. Our spirits were at the lowest ebb by reasons of our failure. For what we had seen in the governor's cellars at Nombre de Dios had so turned our heads that we counted the plunder we had got as nothing. Moreover, our general was in a desperate hurry to reach the ships before evil befell them and we therefore marched so rapidly that we had no time or strength to get proper victuals, and were always half fasting. Our boots were worn to tatters, our feet cut and blistered, our wounds galled us, the mosquitoes tormented us, and beneath all, as I say, rankled our failure. Under such a load of trouble, I think we should have sunk had it not been for Frank, who never ceased to cheer us with new plans for the making of our voyage. What bred most wonder in me was the order he took to lighten our pains. For if one complained of his worn boots or his wound, Frank would always complain louder and always cry plague on the stones, the boots, the nets and everything. I knew his wound was slight and his feet whole, so asked him the reason of his words. Why, says he, see you not that the poor lads, however bad they be, will take some grain of courage if they think there is one who is worse and yet can go on? And moreover, where captain and man share alike, you are most sure to find yourself marching in company content. Yet, for all these, many fainted by the way, and then the Cimarrones would cease their valiant bragging, which otherwise was unceasing since our capture of Veracruz, and bear such as could not walk between two of them very loving and cheerful for two miles or more at a spell. The poor sergeant, the cause of all our woo, plodded on in silence at Harry's heels. He looked like a man who would never joy again, and by no means could I win him to speech. Seven days we toiled thus to the mouth of a river called by the Cimarrones Rio Tortugas, and hither to our great joy came the master, Ellis Hickson, to whom our captain had sent, and took us off to Fort Diego in the Pinnace. There was great joy at our meeting in spite of our little plunder, since they had begun to fear we were destroyed. They said they hardly knew us for the same men, except the captain. So haggard and thin and burned we were, to say no more of the tatters to which the breaks and stones had turned our clothes. Hunger and toil and grief 
had doubtless made great havoc with us, and the fire of that terrible sand had burned us well nigh black. My senorita, to whom I went to comfort soon after I got to the ships, seemed quite shocked to see me. Madre de Dios, senor, she cried, clasping her little hands in terror. How you are changed, ah, and you are wounded. It is well you have come back to me to be made yourself again. Indeed, I am glad you are come back. She held out her hands in such frank welcome that I felt half healed already and sat down as she bade me on her own cushions. Indeed, I am glad you are come back to us, she said again. Then did not Master Hickson treat you well? I asked. Ah, I hate him, she said, knitting her dainty brows. He is a stack, a stone, a log. He kept as well, but I hate him. I never knew why she was so hot against him, but I could only smile to think she must have tried her coaxing on him, as she had on me, but with less success. He was a flimsy Puritan from Plymouth with a wife and children, who would not have unbent, I think. Had Princess Helen herself put up her lips to him, she begged me to come and be her jailer again, and I left her with such hope as it was not hard to give. That evening, as I sat with others in the general's bower, talking over what next was to be attempted, we were surprised by Sergeant Culverin saluting in the doorway. I come, Captain Drake, by your leave, says he, holding himself very stiff, to report myself for punishment. I shall give you none, says Frank, but looked very stern at him, for he was ever slow to forget a fault. You have suffered enough already with your wound, and what your fault is unpunished is wiped out by your valiant bearing before Venta Cruz. For indeed he had done wonders there, and had gotten a sore pike thrust in the arm for which he had suffered great pain and murmuring in our pitiful march. By your leave, Captain Drake, said he, when Frank finished. I crave you a lot some punishment to me. It was a most grievous breach of the discipline of the wars, and I shall joy no more till it be atoned. Moreover, it will be an evil example to the youth of your company and like to breed much discontent and danger to our voyage if I go unpunished. Therefore, for the love of soldiership, I pray you omit not this just dealing with me. The senior John Peter Puliano always held. Peace enough, Frank said. It shall be as you say, so you will spare us your Italian's wisdom. I reverence your soldiership and adjudge you the honorable state of an hour in the hobby horse. A rail was set up by some of the mariners who were nothing loath to be revenged on the old soldier, 
On this he was speedily set with his hands bound behind him and a harquebus hanging to each foot. There he sat stiff and upright, as though he were in the emperor's tilting ground again. He gave no heed to the jeers of younger sailors, but sat grimly on and complaining. As I passed him presently, I could see the pain was as much as he could bear. Weak as he was from hunger and his wound, just then one threw a tuft of grass at him. Then he looked round fiercely, but he only bit his lip to keep in the angry burst that was on his tongue, and stared grimly in front of him again. Then two or three began to whisper it was a sin that such a tall fellow who took his punishment so well should be tormented for what was, after all, but too deep a pool at his flask. So they went amongst the others, and the jeering ceased. Then they fell to encouraging him, and watching the sand glass, till at last, seeing how stiff and grim he still sat, they went in a body to Frank, and would not be content till they had leave to take him down which at last they did, in spite of his angry protesting that he would sit his punishment out. So their past toils and griefs were fast forgotten, and all talk was of what was to be attempted next. Some were for attacking the treasure frigates, which were sure to be moving on the coast now the plate fleets were in but others counted these but fully, seeing how strong and well-manned with soldiers were the wafters that convoyed them. Others, amongst whom was Mr. Oxham, were for gathering fresh victuals from the provision ships, which were always unprotected, that we might thereby recover our sick and get sufficient strength for another attempt by land which now was not to be thought of, seeing that all the main was alarmed and half our company sick. Pedro was very earnest for us to attempt Veragua, a rich town between Nombre de Dios and Nicaragua, where his former master, Señor Pezoro, had the richest gold mine in all the north side, whence he won daily above 200 pounds worth of gold. All this he stored in a great treasure house, to which Pedro promised he could lead us undescried through the woods and make us masters of the untold treasure therein. Every cimarron on the main would further our attempt, he said, because this Pethoto was known to be worse than a devil to his slaves and hated more than any man in all the Indies. But our general was loath to undertake so long a march, though sorely tempted by the greatness of the prize. Our company was too much broken by wounds and sickness to venture so far. So it was concluded to send forth two pinnaces, which were all we could man 
to try what could be done. Mr. Oxham took the bear eastwards towards Tolu to gather victuals, as he had wished, while the general took the minion to ply towards the west and have dealings. If it were possible in the treasure trade, which we knew to be great at this time from Baragua and Nicaragua to the fleet. As for me, I was far too sick with my wound to join either, but not being quite so spent as some, was able to take my old charge of the prisoners. Being little able to walk, I was almost entirely in the ship with the Spaniards. Indeed, I had little duty or pleasure elsewhere. Hickson, our master, was again set over those that remained, and since Harry, Frank, and Mr. Oxham were away in the pinnaces, there was no one amongst the mariners with whom I cared to converse so much as the courtly old Scrivano and his friends. And why should I not confess the rest, since I have unfolded so much? Whether I did wrong, I cannot tell. I had abandoned the guide, whom all my life I had followed, because, as I thought, he had only led me astray. It was hard to trust to anything again. Often I would play with Harry's rapier and think. I know not if the quick, hard life I had been leading was to blame, but it would not say me a or no. After all my recent toil and labor, it was so pleasant to have her at my side, to look to and talk to. Pleasant, too, it was to see how she was bent on winning me, whether for her father's sake to earn him favor at my hands, or for very wanton love of winning a new kind of conquest. I cannot tell. Pleasant, too, to mark how lovingly she sought to ease my pain and beguile the lagging hours, how tenderly she dressed my wound and smoothed my pillow when she bade me sleep. What wonder, then, if I gave myself up to the sweet beguilement What wonder if, when she had set me to rest, and no one was by, I drew the pretty face to mine, and our lips met. I know not, I say, how I shall be blamed. She was so sweet and gentle and kind. I was so weak and weary. It was all I had to give. It was the payment most grateful to her. Well, well. It is long past now for good or ill, if any has been so deceased as I in body and spirit, and so sweetly tended, lying as I did all day in the murmur and savor of a tropic spring in the midst of those jeweled seas. Let him judge me. There were some among my prisoners who looked on with little ease untwirled their little mustaches, but the worldly old Scrivano would not have it otherwise. Let them be, she would say. It will not last forever. 
a friend at court is worth winning. It was when she told me this that I first knew a sweet fear that all she did might not be done in wantonness or even for the prisoner's sakes. Till then, I had thought it was only in their behoof she was kind, and I tried my flowery path with a light heart. Now I began to doubt we were come to where thorns were hidden beneath the blossoms by the way. But it was still too fair and pleasant for me to step. In my weakness, I said there was still time enough. So we continued till near the middle of March, when Mr. Oxham returned in great heart with a smart frigate, laden with a good store of maize and leaf hogs and hens, which greatly rejoiced us. Since we were pinning for fresh food, I was nevertheless not so glad to see him back as I had hoped, since now the general was away there was none to prevent him coming on board my ship every day, where he talked so gaily with my senorita to her manifest content, that I wished in my heart his voyage had been less fortunate. I was overjoyed when Frank came back, not only because it put an end to Mr. Oakham's visits, but also for the news he brought of the cabezas he had met with a frigate of Nicaragua, which he had lightened of a pretty store of gold and her Genoese pilot. This man, who but a week before was at Veragua, had assured our general that the whole coast was palsied with fear of him. So fast had he moved and so suddenly struck that it seemed, so the man said, nothing less than magical, and none knew where the dreaded enemy would next appear. The plain truth was that, eschewing armor after the manner of English mariners, we marched more quickly than the Spaniards ever thought possible, and this greatly increased their fears. So from Nicaragua to Cartagena, they lay shivering in their beds, never knowing if they should sleep the night in peace. Our pilot was only too glad to join his fortunes two hours, on promise that his right should be done him and had led our captain into Veragua harbor, where lay a frigate laden with above a million in gold, not daring to venture forth, but by a new order of watch which they had taken. The pinnace was descried, and the attempt abandoned, since they lay a still better chance in the Chagres River the galleys that were to waft the gold fleet, the Genoese said, were laid up at Nombre de Dios to be fitted. Thus there was nothing to protect the gold frigates but land soldiers, with whom Frank doubted not he could deal. If he gathered all his whole men together, and to this end he was now returned 
to join Mr. Oxenham, the frigate which the lion had captured, being a very smart one, fell in well with Frank's purpose. She was speedily careened, new tallowed, and launched again, as stout, a man of war as any on the coast, all the best of our ordnance was set aboard of her, and as soon as Easter was passed, and the men refreshed, Frank set sail with her and the beer for the Rio Chagres, being willing to break from the dalians in which I lived, I had craved to be taken with them, for I was fast manic, since fresh meat had grown abundant. But Frank would not hear of it, and once more I was left alone with my prisoners, of which in my heart I fear I was glad. Sweet indeed were the days that followed, Every hour my strength seemed to grow, and since there was nothing to do after I had made my rounds amongst the sick, I wandered with my senorita along the shore or in the woods well nigh the lifelong day, and was never weary. Yet what we spoke of I cannot tell. I can hardly recall a phrase she uttered. Yet, she chattered like the golden brook, where we loved best to sit, and I listened more willing and untiring than ever I did to the wisest voices of the ancients. Of herself and of me, it seems to me now was all her talk, the empty prattle of a child. Yet I sat and watched her ripe face and wanted no more. Ours was the life of the lazy pelicans and the scarlet cranes and all the other short fowl that breathed around us that tingling tropic life and crowned with their presence the enchanting beauty of the scene. Once and only once I remember she wandered to deeper things. She spoke of the faith of her people, and how she longed sometimes to be a nun, and have done with love, and be good again. Are you heretic? She then said, suddenly looking at me very wistfully. I trust not, I said, smiling, for it seemed a strangely merry thing to me to see her serious. Why do you laugh? She said, pouting a little. My padre says all Englishmen are Lutheran heretics and will go to torment. How can you laugh at that? It makes me very sad to think of you there and to think I shall not find you in heaven when I come. Why will you be a heretic and pray to the devil? Ah, gentle senorita, I answered. Never think of those things. Your pretty head must not wear such ugly thoughts. Forget it now. Go and crown yourself with flowers as you did yesterday, and I will worship a true goddess and no devil, though something of a witch. So you shall see I am a true believer in your loveliness and no heretic. 
What would you more? Which or not? She answered, rising with a smile. I have tamed your tongue, my faithful worshipper, and brought it to a most gentle pacing. I may not choose, but be carried now with so ever it will amble with me. Twas but a sorry jade, I said, as she rose and gathered some bright flowers that seemed to bend down to kiss her hand. Yet, since you took the rein, I think I can never stumble, nor ever falter or grow dull so long as it feels the gentle spurring of your eye. Save us, worshipper, from your sharp and stinging comparisons, she said. She turned on me radiantly, her pliant figure entwined with a tender vine of rose-colored flowers, and her glossy hair crowned with glowing blossoms. And send your goddess a danger offering. Nay, goddess, said I, it was a bright and glittering offering enough till your radiance put it out of countenance. Then must you offer me something brighter still, she said, as she sat herself upon a great rock half hidden in flowers. See, your goddess is enthroned to your knees, errant worshipper. I will endure no heretical postures. So I knelt before her and offered her such dainty sweet meat phrases as every pretty woman loves, so they be compounded to her taste and served so she may taste without offense. In such wise my pretty plaything and I played together till the sun began to sink, and I returned to my duties wandering idly, as the wise Sir de Montaigne tell us in his apology for Raymond Seventh, he did of his cat, whether she played with me or I with her, and wandering too, still more to think how the magic of the West, or warfare, or whatsoever else it might be, had changed me. It was barely a year ago, since I was alone with another woman, the first I ever knew, how different it was then, and yet perhaps how like, if we but knew the springs of our hearts. But enough of that. Let me not speak of those two with one breath. I seemed another man as I looked backward. Yet was there no miracle, for surely it is no more than natural that, when a man has burst the bonds in which he blindly bound down and tormented his soul, it should grow quickly to its proper shape if it finds itself planted in soil that is apt to its true nature. All too soon, as we thought, and yet perhaps not soon enough, Frank came back with the frigate and the pinnace in company with a goodly bark. A fat prize at least, I cried as he rode up to the ship. 
and I not there to see. Is our voyage made? Not yet, said Frank. And yet, I hope, not far from it. Yonder is no prize, but a Frenchman with seventy good Huguenots aboard, whom we had admitted to our company. Let me present to you her captain, most worthy Monsieur Tetou. He bowed with great ceremony and much spreading abroad of his hands, and I asked if he had any news from Europe, at which, to my surprise, he seemed very pained. Yes, broke in Frank. He has news. Would God he had not. Is the queen married then? I asked quickly, for it was always the first inquiry of strangers in those shifting times. No, answered Frank, nor like to be, it seems. Be pleased, monsieur, to tell Mr. Festing what tidings you bring. And with that, the little French captain, with excited gesture and kindling eyes, poured into my scorched ears the black and awful tale of the massacre of Paris on St. Bartholomew's days on the occasion of the King of Navarre's marriage with the Princess Margaret. We could none of us speak for a while when he ended the relation of that most foul and detestable crime. I could only feel leap up in my heart a mad longing, like Frank's, to be revenged, and that speedily. It seemed to revive in me all my old detestation of the papists and the whole body of them, innocent and guilt alike, seemed again a cursed thing in my eyes. Many a better man than I was seized with the same mud rage when he knew that tale. How could we be otherwise? Yet I contained myself enough to express my pity to the French captain, who seemed well-nigh broken-hearted at the blood upon his country's fame. Truly, Mr. Fersting, it is hard to bear, he said with a bitterness that cut me to the heart. I never thought to see the day when I could say that those Frenchmen were happiest who were farthest from France. That is why I have sailed hither and turned my back on her. I wash my hands of her. She is France no longer, but rather Francie, and all Gaul is Gaul indeed. His attempt to pleasantry touched me very deeply, for I knew how bitterly he felt the loss of his country, and I tried some apology. You are kind, Mr. Festing, he said, taking my hand very warmly, after the manner of his country. It is not France, my pure, simple, single-hearted France, that has done this. It is Italian practices that have overmastered French simplicity. Truly, sir, Italy is an accursed land, and curses all it touches with its nine psalm humors. He seemed a brave heart, and was a sea man 
in all his inches. For my part, I conceived a great liking for him, though I think Frank would have been glad enough to be well rid of him and his company. Yet I could not say him nay, he said to me, when I saw his poor fellows more than half starved. Moreover, he was so mighty civil, and said that five weeks ago he had heard of us and of our great dealings, as he pleased to put it, and ever since he had been seeking, desiring nothing so much as to meet with the gentleman who had set the whole Spanish main in a tremble. I was bound to relieve him with our spare victuals, and so was obliged to abandon our attempt on the Charles River. And then, you agreed to venture in company? said I. Yes, said he, yet I will not say it was without some jealousy and mistrusts, for all his civility, yet seeing how earnest he was to be our friend, and how strong to hurt us if he were our enemy, we concluded to take him and twenty of his company to venture equally. And it is man for man and ten for ten again, I asked. No, lad, no, answered Frank. That would never do. As I told our monsieur, thought his company was seventy, and mine now but thirty-one. Mine must weigh more than his, since in our purposed play the principal actors were not numbers of men, but rather their judgment and knowledge, to which arguments he agreed with the best grace he could. The more so, as I showed him, his great tonnage was no good in our present case. Then, are we not to attempt the Chagres fleet? said I. No, he answered. That is where they are looking for us. We must attempt the place where they last expect us. And where is that? said I. We're but knocking at the back door of Nombre de Dios, he answered, laughing to see my surprise at this his wildest plan of all. Now save you, Frank, said I, from a very midsummer madness. You will never get in there again, or at least get out again if you do. Oh, says he, tease, not so mud as that. We have no cause to go in. We will get the gold outside. The great recuse are passing by road now the whole way. What is easier with our present help than to deal with one of them when it is all but home and thinks all danger is over? Pedro will lead us thither into the Rio Francisco and then a little march. I have already sent for the Cimarrones many times. Jasper, we have struck a miss. God has shown the Spaniards great mercy, yet now, I think, since he has sent us this French company with tidings of this last most bloody dealing of the Italian priest 
against his faithful people of Paris. It is surely his will that we shall entreat these idolaters according to their iniquity. And so, by his grace, we will, and our voyage be made. End of chapter 24